<laughs> How's it going, man? I'm really well, thank you. I'm really well. I've missed your big smile. <laughs> yeah, it's been a year now since we last spoke. It like time is flying. Yeah, and you're always so positive. And it was a lovely reception, the first video that you did. How long ago was that now? Do you remember? Yeah, that was March last year. March last year. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have got a completely, probably almost completely different audience this evening, Joe and me. So we've got 30 minutes, and I was just going to ask if you would just recap your story to begin with to, to the people watching this evening, please. Yeah, that's no problem. So I was sexually abused when I was eight years old for two years by a male. He was around 25 at that time, and he was a trusted member of the family. He had access to me through helping my family with childcare. So he was a trusted member of, of our circle. And the abuse finished when I was 10 years old. And then I continued my life. I returned back to the boy that I was before. I had great friends. I was very social. I was very outgoing. I was doing very well at school. And then, so I just continued. I uh, went into my career as a design engineer in the aerospace automotive industry so everything was good and then everything changed when I was 25 the memories started to come back and haunt me they wouldn't leave me alone so I spoke out to a close friend about it and then I started to speak to more people and more people and then I started to think about where this guy that did this to me is now and what's he up to and if and and because I know what he did, I felt a responsibility that I should go and find out what he's up to. Quick question then. Yes. How, how many years were there be, be, between the abuse and the moment you reached that point? And during those years, had you seen him around town or anything? So it was from the moment the abuse finished to the, the first time I spoke out about it loud was 17 years. Wow. And I, I never saw him from the day it stopped. And I'd never forgotten about what happened. I was just getting on with my life. Little things would remind me here and there, like let's say something would come up on the news or or like the Jimmy Savile story was massive or I'd watch a film like Sleepers and, and everything would come back. But it would just send me off balance for a small amount of time and then I'd just return back to my life. Great career, great friends. I was out partying. So I was continuing. Would you say, though, that subconsciously someone, something was gnawing away inside of you during those years? An interesting metaphor that somebody's given me before is that what happens when something so horrific happens to you when you're a child, you cannot process it at that time. So you box it up tightly and put it to the back of your mind. That's what I believe I did. And then as I came to an age of maturity, the box comes to the front and starts to release the memories. Um, now, you could look back at some of my behavior when I was a child and probably link it to the abuse. But, you know, I have spoken to the people who have been involved in my life, the whole of my life, my friends, parents and other people. And they're like, you know what, even now we know what happened. I still look back and I'm like, we would have never known. So I locked it very. This is something that's very fascinating for us. Children are so clever and so that they do they do this very effectively. So, so you had it completely buried then, but you know, every now and then there was a little something, but generally you, you were able to get on with your life. 
Absolutely. I had a great career, design engineer, great friends. And it was when I started speaking out about it and dealing with actually the memories that were haunting at this point in my mid-20s and questioning about where he was that I just started to decide. I decided that I should find out. So I started looking for him online, couldn't find him anywhere, um, but managed to find his wife's Facebook profile and he was in her pictures. And it was the first time I was seeing his face for 25 years. What did that moment feel like? Oh my goodness. I just, my heart was racing. Um, But I told myself, look at his face, you know, stare at his face because he is a man like any other man, he's no threat to me anymore. Even though I'm feeling this anxiety through seeing his face again for the first time for 25 years, um, he is no, he's no threat to me now. I'm a man now. What happened between, what happened in the past is between him and eight-year-old Jeremy, not not 35-year-old Jeremy. Now 35-year-old Jeremy's here coming to sort the problem. That's how I felt. And what um, consequences did you fear could arise if you went ahead with that plan? Did that you know, did consequences yeah. enter your mind or did you just want to, it was something you just knew you had to do? You know what, I was looking back at it now, I kind of look back with a slight smile because I was very naive in thinking that he would just meet me. You know, I what I wanted was I wanted to meet him. I suggested when I messaged his wife online, I said, I will meet you in a neutral place, a coffee shop where other people are around because we need to talk about what went on. And I thought he would actually reply and say yes. But of course, he didn't. They blocked me from the messenger service. And that's when I went to the police to report the crime. How receptive were the police? So... The, repl- the police were, I feel like the response that I got from the police was was good. I felt like the people who I was dealing with wanted to help me, but I felt like they were just being held back because, you know, they couldn't investigate all the people I'd told over the years. They They couldn't do a number of things that when I was being interviewed, there was meant to be two officers in there asking me questions to get the best out of me, but there was only one. And all of this is apparently i'm told due to funding there's just a lack of funding now i want to point out one thing that i feel is a massive failure that we will never get back and that is once i had reported the crime to the police i'd given a three-hour statement of every physical memory that i could remember every physical detail of every memory i had listed the names and phone numbers of the 20 people i had spoken out to but he was still put on voluntary arrest. Now, the reason why I have an issue with that is because the voluntary arrest has allowed him to possibly clear his computer. Why was my three-hour statement and the list of people I'd spoken out not enough to arrest him at his home and seize his computer? Because that, it's very likely he would have had something on there. You know, something. But that, that opportunity has been lost forever. And very sadly, my case was investigated for one year, my, the case against him, and it was dropped because of insufficient evidence, lack of evidence. And I feel like if there was something on that computer, we could have secured something, right? 
and the lack of evidence and the drop cases case being dropped yes every lots of people are very sad for me and they feel like you know i'm very sad about it but there's something more important than that and that is there is still there we know there is a man out there with a tendency towards children and we are not doing anything about it and since i last spoke to you i've spoke to a lot of other survivors and we've formulated a mission now on the YouTube channel whereby we're campaigning for the complete end of the war on drugs because that's just draining all the police resources and taking those resources to prosecute and incarcerate predators. And what you just said is a perfect example. They didn't have the resources to deal with it. So there's a misallocation there that we're, we're, trying to, we're campaigning to get corrected. So take us to the moment then that led to the decision to go to his door? Well, once the case was dropped, I felt an anger that he had denied it. I felt like if you were, if you were that man to take me as a young boy and manipulate me like that, then you should be man enough to face me now and have a discussion with me about what went on. So I decided that I was going to try to find where he lives and knock on his door. And so that is what I did. I managed to find where he lives by following his wife home from work. It all didn't feel quite right to me, but it felt like I had no other option. I tried to go through the system, but they, they, they're, not, they're not doing anything for me. So I felt like he, I should confront him on what he did and say what I want, want to say to him. So I managed to find out where he lives. I knocked on his door. He answered. We were then standing face to face. We had a hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on. As you're walking to the door, yeah, what is going through your head? <laughs> My heart is racing, and I'm <laughs> I'm not even sure whether he's there. You know, I'm not even sure whether he's in. But the car was there. I definitely knew it was their house. I knocked on that door. The porch light went on, and the door came open. Luckily, he didn't look through the peephole. Right. He didn't for for some reason. And then, um, yeah, he recognized me instantly and went to slam the door shut. How do you know he recognized you instantly? Oh, my God. You should have seen his face. You should have seen his face. He was like, oh, shit, he's come for me. You know, that's how he felt. Oh, it just felt so powerful. Honestly, it felt so powerful. Was he afraid? Would you say? Um. I would say he's afraid, not physically of me, but afraid that I've brought this back to his life. Yeah, I've brought his dark secret back to his life. He's got a wife and kids, you know, so he's continued his life. And um, he went to slam the door on me. I managed to hold it open. I'm quite a bigger person than him. I could outstrength him um and we had the confrontation for 10 minutes slow down slow down when you say you managed to hold the door open what do you mean by that oh okay so he opened it went to slam the door shut but i managed to get my foot in front of the door so now my foot my toe is up against the door and my my heel is up against the threshold is he yelling and anything so at you sorry was he yell yelling anything at you at this point I said to him, you recognize me, don't you? What the hell do you think you were playing at? And then, and then he would try to shout out over me. What I don't know what he... you're talking about. You're lying. You're trying to blackmail me for money. You're on drugs. This is what he was saying. Oh, so, how, how are you processing his responses? I, you know what? I, I say this quite a bit. 
if we could have had a body language expert at the scene, then they would have said guilty. You know, what, 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 what kind of reaction is that? Surely the reaction of a, of a not guilty man would have opened the door and been like, Jeremy, what the hell has been going on this year? What is this that you're saying? But his reaction was very different. His reaction was, oh, shit, he's here. So as the commotion was continuing, did that attract the other family members to the door? So his wife was in the background. He was shouting to call the police. And she was on the phone to the police. And it sounded, to the police, it must have sounded like I had them at gunpoint. You know, he was screaming, she was screaming. But I was speaking like I am now. I, I was calm and collected and that was always my aim because actually I wasn't going for violence. That's the last thing I wanted to happen. I was going for to confront him and get him to face me. What did you hope? What would the ideal outcome have been for that evening for you? For us, it sounds so crazy, but for us to sit down and talk about what the hell went on, why he did it, what was driving him to do it, what was in his head, what was exciting him about it. I was eight years old, like an eight-year-old body is so small and, you know, it's it's like, it's a child. So what was it, you know, and, and it's not like he was just touching me here and there, like we were naked and he was fully aroused. So he was, there's something in his mind that is driving, you know, he's being driven to this very, he's, he's, he's dark perversion. So I want to ask him about these things. I, it should be my right to ask him about these things. You know? What would you have done if he had of chatted with you and apologized? Would that have given you closure? I think an apology would help, you know, and an explanation of why would help and some kind of reassurance that he's not still doing this would help because that's really the ultimate aim, isn't it? You know, we know these people have done these things. Now what we're hoping for, yes, that's in the, but that's in the past and it's done. We're not erasing that. Now what we're trying to do is make sure they don't repeat this behavior. You know, he must be like 50 now. So he's still got a long life to, lead, uh, to, to live. And yes, okay, let's say, let's say that, um, which I don't believe is the case, but let's say I was the only one, right? We still don't know, and he's never done that again. We still don't know for the rest of his life if he's going to give in to that temptation again. It's a desire they have. It's like a sexual pull that they've got. Like, we need to... Yeah, so so an apology and a reason and some kind of reassurance that he's not still doing it would have given me closure, yes. All right, so you're at the door. A couple of minutes have gone by. He's yelling for the police. His wife's calling the police. You're staying calm, but there's some kind of struggle at the door. What happens next? So would the police arrive? Um, how, long, how long did that take, do you think? I, I, I was at the door for seven minutes. And, um, and the whole seven minutes, are you, have you got your foot in and you're still yeah, like pressuring? Yeah, yeah, the whole time. He's caught during that seven minutes. He's calling his wife to get a knife to try to get me away from the door because he's like, get a knife, get a knife. And I, 
the reason why I can recall this so well is because before I knocked on the door, I pressed voice record on my phone and put it in my pocket. So I have a recording of the whole incident. And the reason why I did that is because I thought if it gets out of hand and he starts saying that I did this and I did that afterwards, I want there to be a recording. So I have the recording on my phone, which was then used later on. But yes, after about seven minutes, it it shows on the recording. I say to him, because I feel like I've said everything that I want to say. And I say to him, right, where are the police? I go and wait at the end of the drive. Three police cars turn up and they surround me. Before we go there, how long did that seven minutes seem to last at the time? It was like, it felt like a long time, but that's because, you know, it was just so intense. But by the end of it, the nice thing was, I remember thinking to myself, because it felt, I felt so much in the driving seat, I felt calm. And um, I was thinking in my head, um, how, is there anything else you want to say? You know, is there anything else you want to say? Because he was just, it was me in control of the situation. That's really interesting that, you know, even though your heart was going like crazy as you're approaching the door, you managed to stay calm, like in, in your dialogue with him. Yeah, I'm so pleased that I did as well. You know, when it was all over, I was so pleased. It couldn't have gone better, really. So what do the cops say then? They think, you know, there's a, a maniac trying to get in a house, basically. Are they quite hostile to you at first? At, at, the, at first, yes. You know, because it, it must have sounded to, on the phone like that I, I was the aggressor. And they, they came, they jumped out of their cars, they came for me and they said, what, can you explain what you're doing here? And I just said, yeah, I pointed to him at the door and I said, yep, that's the man that abused me when I was a child and I've come to speak to him about it. And that changed everything. Really? You know? Yeah, it changed everything. The whole vibe, the whole atmosphere changed because no one's really, no one's saying that, you know. You know, they could see my demeanor. They could see I waited at the end of the drive for them. I even called them in, you know, didn't run away. I wasn't looking scatty. I just, I was just calm and I just told him how it was. Then he decided, this guy and his wife decided to press charges against me um, at the scene. So I was put in the police car and I spent the night in the cell. And how did that feel? What were you reflecting on in the cell? I was asking myself, how the hell have I ended up in, like, how was my, how has my life ended up in this situation? Not just the cell, just everything about what is going on in my life right now. But I just thought, you know what, that just went the best it could have given the situation. He answered the door. There was no violence. I got my foot in front of the door. He didn't slam it in my face. And yeah okay it's not so great that he's prosecuting me but that i got i got what the best i could of out of that situation were you able to sleep that night or was your mind racing yeah my mind was absolutely racing i mean and also i was in a cell with some they took all my belt and everything off me my shoelaces you know i was treated like the criminal um because in the eyes of the law at that moment i was the criminal um, he was prosecuting me for assault, 
for pushing him in the chest during the confrontation, stalking for following his wife home from work to find out where they live, and harassment for the number of times I've tried to make contact with him over the last two years prior to that. So were consequences dawning that night? Were you worried about your job? Were you worried about your family members finding out? No, because I wouldn't have changed what happened. I wouldn't have taken back what happened. It was absolutely necessary that I did what I did. I feel. I feel and I still feel. So on that night specifically then, you were certain you'd done the right thing? Yeah. I felt like confronting him was the right thing. All right. So you're in the cop shop overnight. When they come the next day, what did they say to you? So they interviewed me. They were very respectful for why I was there. I explained why I was there. I explained what happened. I explained the case against him that failed. And I gave all the information. And, you know, I've got nothing to lie about. I've got nothing to hide. I just tell him the absolute truth. And um, I've got no, I'm not trying to make anything up or, you know, so they could, they could see that I was, I felt like they could see I was telling my story. And they interviewed me at, at the police station, I had a duty solicitor and then they released me on bail. And um, then things started to unfold. What do you mean unfold? So I was in court three times. Um, coronavirus was obviously skewing the schedule. And I, so this is, not- so this is what's happened since we, since we spoke. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is what we're now at the point yeah. since we spoke. So, okay. Um, I went to court three times. I pleaded not guilty. The sad thing about it was I felt like they were all looking at me like I was a criminal, you know? I was in the waiting room, treated like, you know, go and wait there, come in, give your plea. It's harassment. It's stalking. Nobody was mentioning why I was there. I was very frustrated. Then we tried to kick off a trial. There were issues with the recording of the, on my mobile phone. So we we had the trial date and then his team of barristers were saying, we don't want the recording played. And my team was saying, well, it's a recording of what happened. If you had CCTV of anything, you would always play it. So why won't you play this? And then they were saying, it's got nothing to do with the charges. It's just a recording. Now, what I know they were worried about was because I'm calling him out on this recording on everything. I was saying, you know, why did you get me to teach? Why were you teaching me how to X, Y, Z? You know, what? and I mentioned everything explicitly, right? So they didn't want that played. So the trial got delayed. And then we had the final trial this year, a couple of months ago. Wow. So what happened at the final trial then? So the, the final trial started with them talking about me going to prison for six months. That's how the morning started. And the reason for that type of sentence was because what they're saying is that harassment in this country gets taken very seriously. And harassment is if you approach somebody more than twice when they've asked you not to. And of course, I've given them details of every time I've approached him because I'm not lying about anything. And it's a lot more than twice. So I was in the, the dock bit, the witness bit. And he was then came into the dock and was questioned. And he absolutely crumbled. 
he was stuttering. He was not answering the questions clearly. They were saying to him, yeah, he was like, I was terrified for my life and I'm terrified for my life now. And then they played a bit of the recording and it shows me speaking so softly. And my barrister was like, what bit of that feels like he was threatening you? He's very calm and collected, you know? And then he was like, oh, and he pushed me in the chest and I stumbled backwards. And, and uh, I, sorry, he pushed me in the chest and it's left a, a red mark on my chest. And now I'm worried about injury. And then she's like, oh, when he pushed you in the chest, did you let go of the door or did you manage to hold it? And he said, yes, I, I managed to hold it. I'm protecting my house. And she was like, well, if, you, if he pushed you so hard, surely you would have stumbled backwards and let go of the door, you know? So he was just falling. And I was, I was standing there. I was like five meters away from him. I looked him in the eyes the whole time. 40 minutes he was being questioned. He did not look at me once. Wow. How did it feel to be just staring at him for that long? I was looking at him thinking, I can't actually believe what you've done. I can't believe what you've done. You're actually a man that would do that kind of thing, you know? And you're you're now facing the consequences in some way because you're in a dock, you're in the dock being questioned, and you know I'm out, I've been outspoken about it. You know the recording's going to get played where all the explicit stuff is on there, and you're now crumbling in front of everybody. Um, they even said he, he even said oh he was saying the most filthy things, the most horrible things, and then my barrister was like, well. If you're going to make that claim, what were those things? Right? <laughs> and he was like, you know, because I said things like, you were teaching me to suck your ex, right? Mm. And then, and, and so obviously he's not going to say that, is he? Right? Mm. So he was like, I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't say it. And then the judge goes, um, look, we're in court every day. Like we hear the most hor horrendous things. If you're going to make an accusation that you were threatened because he was saying filthy things, you have to say them. He refused. So then he's just started looking like a fraud. That's it. I'm, I'm proud of you, man. It's like your authenticity and your just like your good energy just resonates all the time. And this bullshit artist he just buried himself by the sounds of things. Oh, Sean, I was standing there and, and, and as he was looking like a fool and I was like, surely, surely you prepared for this, mate. And you could come with a better game than this. You know, that's how I was thinking. This is your, this is a big day for you. You should have sorted yourself out. And then all it made me think was as soon when I get in that dock, I'm going to smash these questions. That's what I thought. That's did, did, did he call his wife as a witness or anything? Was she trying to help him cover this up? So his wife is involved in the situation and she has given evidence. Um, but you know what? <laughs> you may disagree, but I'm not sure whether she's in on it or whether she has just been fed a lullaby for her whole life or whether she kind of has a suspicion because who would come after him like that about these things? Um, but she just doesn't want to believe it because it's ripping her life apart, you know, her very nice life that she had before. Um, well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, if she's invested her life into him and had kids with him, that, you know, what, what you have said would just completely shatter her belief system and her worldview and her faith. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's probably so incomprehensible to her 
that she would, uh, I, I mean, in the beginning, she would be in shock and just rallying around him. He yep. may have had he may have had some stern words since then, by the sounds of things, from his performance in the courtroom. But um, what, what was she? She married. Do you know how long they had been married? I think they've been married a long, long time. You know, not 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 when we were not when the abuse was going on, though. You know, so yeah, that question came in from one of the viewers, Hessa. Thank, thanks for the questions, Hessa. If anyone else has got questions for Jeremy, please put them in the chat. So you had to take the stand, then I take it. Yes. So I was questioned for 40 minutes and I felt, you know what? I felt so strong up there and I felt like, which I felt like driving to the court that morning. This isn't just about me. This is about making a stand for us, the situation, what we're all trying to do yourself and myself and all the other people trying to raise awareness for this horrific situation. I felt like I was standing there for everybody and his barrister tried to break me down right um but I, I i was like he was like do you think don't you think that when somebody tells you to go away that you should not repeat to keep going yeah and i was like no because i hadn't got my answers yet i said you know when you experience sexual abuse as a child you need to have answers of why that happened etc 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 you cannot just and i just stood my ground and it felt like that six-month prison sentence in the morning just disappeared and everybody in that courtroom after his display and my display were like, yeah, this guy just this guy just wanted to confront the man that abused him when he was a child. Was this a jury trial then? Were there a lot of people in the courtroom? No, it was magistrates. So um, it was two judges at the front. Mm -hmm. And did you have people come on your side and he had people on his side? No, because you weren't allowed any members of the public because of coronavirus. Oh, gotcha. Okay. You know, I had so many people on my platforms now that have grown since we last spoke. People were messaging me. They wanted to support. They wanted to come and stand outside. They wanted to come in the courtroom, but none of that was allowed. So right. it was just me and him. And did you know whether you were going to get a decision on that day? So I knew the decision was going to happen that day. Once all the questioning had, had happened, the judges went into the back room and took an hour to make their decision. And I thought, you know what, if they're going to punish me, I, I give this my, I give today my best shot. You know, I performed in the dock the best I could have. And so I will take whatever they give me on the chin. Now they came out and they gave me, they, they considered me not guilty for all the charges except for the assault. And they said it was assault via reckless reaction, which I now understand means instant reaction um, of me pushing him in the chest. So I was guilty for that. So they gave me a thousand pound fine and a restriction order against him. The restriction order was, was um, obviously expected. And then my barrister said to me, look, you've really done well today because they gave you that thousand pound fine. They had to punish you in some way because you can't just go around people's houses and do this, that and follow them and all the, all of this. So they, they had to be seen to be giving you something. Um, they didn't give me a criminal record. They said they would not do that. And um, what I really like about the situation is he applied for compensation 
So he had written a massive letter saying that his life has changed. Um, he can't use public transport anymore because he's scared that I'm around the corner. He's thinking about moving house. He's had to think about job change. So he'd written this big letter, which I read, um, applying for compensation and the judge threw it out. <laughs> so I, I just was like, well, that seals the deal for me. And you know what else happened is his barrister, when we were all putting coats on outside, you know, when the court finished, he walked past me and he goes, um, uh, today well done for today um i've seen what you're doing online good luck with it mate that was his barrister yeah wow so he even knew he was a fraud <laughs> you know but he just had a job to do to try to defend him and get me done yeah okay so you've got a question has come in from mtl momzilla what would be your advice to people who have not yet come out with their history of childhood abuse I always refrain from advising anybody to speak out. But what I always do say is that I, I, I try to explain that when I did speak out to a close friend, um, a trusted member that I had, it was a very relieving feeling. And um, I do not regret it. And it really lifted me. It's like a release. Um, but I always say, if you do not have anybody to that you close to you that you would tell, uh, I suppose my advice would always be to journal what happened and read it back to yourself you know, and, and write it in a way that when you read it back to yourself, it makes you feel strong. That's one of my bits of advice with coming out with what happened. How has your life been since the trial so I feel refreshed when the trial had finished because on my social media platforms, I'd been reporting as the journey went on in the most creative ways that I can with the short films and everything. And I felt like I'd been talking about the court case for so long now. It's just going to be refreshing to start focusing on the other areas of this project of raising awareness that I care for, which is education in children, finding out what's going on in these people's heads, the legislation, the laws, and survivor support. So now I feel refreshed. My life is now more momentum than ever. Yeah, I don't know if you saw a recent podcast with Maya, but she was um, a victim of her own father who from age four until for over 10 years. And he filmed it and kept a diary of it. And they had all the evidence in the world against this bastard. The judge said, you're the most evil person ever to step in my courtroom. But all I can give you is, you know, a certain amount of years, even though you deserve a life sentence. So he got 10, which is the most you could give him at 50%, which all he had to serve. He'd already done two on remand. So he was out after three and he knew it. He knew it. He even wrote a letter to the judge mocking the system and the whole process it makes me so angry sean and you think right when these people who have definitely got their communities online you know they're they're going back to their community and laughing at us you know they are laughing at how poorly we are managing this situation like look at that that's a that's a good example of where, where is the sentencing for these things you know I see your work as well, you know, and I know you're really pushing for change. And um, I just think it's one of the most important things we can do. The children are relying on us for this, yeah, because they don't have a voice. We're the ones that can make a change. So it's like they're relying on us to, to try to do something about this. So, yeah, educating the kids is great. 
but how can we get the politicians to enact changes? It's it's like a quagmire. I'm not sure, Sean, and and um, I feel like maybe it's just numbers speaking numbers speaking out putting pressure petitions um i haven't actually gone down that road of of uh, uh, approaching the politicians and the laws yet um i i've been focusing a lot about education of children you know teaching them where their private areas are what to do if anybody touches you there secrets and nobody's meant to ask you to keep one and all of that all of that kind of area at the moment as far as the laws and everything go which is a concern of mine as well i mean what do you think the answer to that question is, I suppose? All right, well, so we had a prosecutor on. He was a guy who actually prosecuted Maxwell in the UK, a first ever prosecution. And he has managed to get laws changed in this country. So I specifically said, you know, here's what happened to Maya. And he did, in that interview, tell us which government body we needed to get her story in front of. So I'm not sure of the specifics of how to do that, but I need to go back and rewatch that interview. I'll send it to you as well if you want. Yes, please. Um, he would be a good guy for you to connect with, I suspect. Yes. So this guy knows the system thoroughly, and that's the kind of person we need because you know I don't know the UK system at all, the politicians, the legislators, how all that works. But this guy does. He's, he's had changes made previously, so I think we need to follow up on what he suggested we should do. So another complex thing I've been thinking about, though, Sean, is what are we going to do with the people who have these tendencies that have never committed the crime, but they know they've got these tendencies? It's another question that's complex in my head. Okay, so I had a woman on called Dr. Sarah Good, and we did a podcast called Inside the Minds of Pedophiles. Oh, wow. Okay. It's on, it's on the True Crime Podcast playlist if you want to watch it. Yeah. And um, she broke down all the different classifications and she went on a television program, a documentary with the, the exact person you just described, someone who doesn't act on it, who had a family. I think he had a wife and kids. And he said, look, I'm stepping up to tell the world about this cool. because you need to understand this thought process. Otherwise, you're never going to fix it. <laughs> yeah. And the present attitude is, just grab people like me and hang me, but that's not going to solve anything. You've got to understand the psychology behind it. And, you know, obviously if he has these thoughts, horrible thing. Um, but there is a degree of helpfulness there from him to actually go on TV and show his face and, and say the things that he said. So, you know, we need to do more studies into the psychology. And Maya, of course, is campaigning for longer sentences. And the other thing that we're looking at is chemical castration. Okay, wow, interesting. And I'd also be interested, Sean, about what's actually going on when they're serving the prison sentence. You know, is there any type of rehabilitation, whatever that would be? Or or I don't, I'm not sure. Or is it just stick them in a cell and then release them into the community? Um, you know, for me, the guy that did this, what what I suppose you asked me earlier, what was my main aim 
of confronting him. But what my overall aim would be is for him to be on a sex offenders register for the rest of his life. This is a guy we need to be monitoring. I have told all the authorities, you know, he works for the NHS. I mailed the NHS. I heard nothing back. It's like, I'm telling, I'm telling you to the authorities, I'm telling the authorities what this guy did, you know? Uh, it's not something that you make up. It's not something that you put together for some weird, you know, response. It's it's like, I'm telling you what happened. I'm telling you there's a guy out there with this tendency, but nothing is being done. So there's just so many parts of this that need to be fixed. And we've touched on many of them this evening. So you just brought up the prison part. What happened to them? So they go to their own prisons, don't they? And... I mean, the prison system is just the commoditization of humans for profit. So hmm. to give anybody, you know, counseling and rehabilitation and education costs money. From my experience in America, you don't get anything, you know. Uh, I, I imagine that the UK, there's, there's probably a bit more than that. But these guys, I, I, I doubt they get enough to uh, address the root causes. And I imagine that they come out and, and commit the same things. I'm even told horrible, horrible things that... Like, you know, if, if you put a bunch of pedophiles in the same prison, they're going to learn and yep. compare notes. Yep. I've, I've, made a, I've made a video about this, you know. You're just putting them they're, – they're all just talking about how to not get caught next time, you know. Oh, well, send me that video, please. I'd love to put that on the channel yeah. if, if, if yeah. you're up for that. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that side of it. But – Perhaps if we give them the option to do chemical castration, then, you know, maybe that would eliminate that drive completely. Mm. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's got to be researched more. Yeah. So a chemical castration, does that remove the hormones, does it, that is driving somebody to do this? Yeah. I think it's the yeah, testosterone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I spoke to trans prisoners who'd castrated themselves and they told me, that all you know all that drive was gone okay yeah. yeah yeah you know this is so crazy isn't it the situation on this planet is so crazy how this is being allowed to to happen and i think the 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 a lot of the villainizing of these like making these people in the media to be monsters it makes them to most people like scary human beings a lot of people are like i can't believe you confronted him i can't believe you met him i can't believe you stood in front of him in court and i'm trying to communicate that he's just another man and what happened happened in the past it was with my younger self who got caught up in a situation i did not understand we need to start addressing these people and not being fearful of them or shutting them pushing them into a corner and turning the light off on them that's not solving anything yeah, so that's why, you know, what Dr. Sarah Good is doing is excellent work to try and understand the psychology behind it. And um, it is a misallocation of resources, I believe, because prisons were designed to house people who harm other people. But to fill them up to maximize the profits, it's, it's all low-level drug offenders, people with addiction issues. Th those are health issues. They should be referred to health teams. Mm -hmm. So if we if we ended the warehousing of people with drug problems, the amount of money that would be freed up is staggering. And then they could do the studies into chemical castration. They could spend more on trying to like house the pedophiles in a prison whereby they would you know delve into their minds, 
determine their risk factors, whether they could be allowed back in, into the public and, and stuff like that. So, and there's loads of, you know, there's police watch these podcasts and they did sign up to nail pedophiles yeah. and, and predators, yeah. but they're out doing revenue generation. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a broken system and the public's absolutely sick of it because there's an epidemic of pedophilia because of technology. Yeah. Every kid has got a device. Yeah. Well, the access is right there. And I don't know if you saw what we do with Ron Swanson on a, on a Friday night. We've done this series called The Darkest Net, and he's got software that blocks the images out. But he goes onto the dark net, sees the oh, chat wow. rooms where these pedophiles are discussing, you know, what what's the best way to snatch a kid? Oh. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the amount of parents I've spoken to that have had their younger daughters, for example, being approached on Instagram, let's say, um, by people who are re not revealing their age and later finding out they were older people and they just blocked them. Like, so should we also not be putting more pressure on these social media giants to to dedicate a, a percentage of their gigantic profit to cleaning up their platforms? Yeah, that's part of it as well. But again, it's profit maximization. It costs them money to do that. And they, they have to be absolutely forced. You know, something usually something really horrific has to happen before the, the corporations and the politicians yeah. will act. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. So we've got an unsafe world for children to grow up in, like a really unsafe. And like you say, with the growth of the internet, social media platforms, I mean, TikTok is another great one. I mean, if you are somebody who wants to approach your under minors, I mean, you've just got a free-for-all. They must be laughing behind our back, Sean. So Taryn Eve just put a comment in the chat. Has anyone seen the documentary called Pervert Park? It's about a, a community of sex offenders living together. No, I've not heard of that one. Um, if, if anyone's got any, we've, we're almost out of time with Jeremy. If anyone's got any questions for him, please put those in the chat now. And how is your life these days, Jeremy? You know, are you, how's your work and how's the lockdown yeah. affect, affected everything for you? So everything is going really well with my with my platforms. They are now starting to grow. I've got a donate page coming out next month, which I hopefully will see some money to help me continue creating the content, much like what your Patreon is about, um, because I gave up my career as a design engineer two years ago to try to get something off the ground. And so I have no income. I'm using my savings. I sold everything that I've got. I'm sleeping around people's houses. Like I'm all into this. I'm all in. I want to get this donation page running. I want to create better films. I want to create better animations. And it's really working. So many people are messaging me saying that they've got strength and courage from my work. Many parents are messaging me saying that they're now educating their children through seeing some of the stuff I've been producing. Um, I re released the animation on my YouTube and other platforms a couple of months ago. It got 150,000 views, which for me is ginormous. And um, it's just so it fills me with encouragement that I can create something that will grab people's attention about this tricky subject. And so I will just keep continuing, Sean, and try to build something. Yeah, and so many of the survivors I've interviewed have fallen back on drug and alcohol abuse. Have you managed to put a lid on it so whereby you, you, know, you don't feel 
that you have to self-medicate on substances or anything? Yes, Sean, I have. And I feel very grateful that I've done that. You know, I spent my 20s partying and delving in a lot of things and having a lot of irrational behavior. But now I know that those temptations that dangle a carrot of relief in front of you, once you actually do the thing, there's no release. There's no relief or release there. So I try my hardest to keep on the straight and narrow and not give in to the temptations of drugs alcohol anger lashing out treating other people like shit because it makes you feel better i'm trying my hardest um to stay on the straight and narrow 12 step woman has put a question up um we should go seek out children and warn them that we could have been predators but that's inappropriate there has to be a way to educate parents i see so she's saying then um that it's more it's appropriate to educate the parents about the risks i take it yeah okay so anyway what's your interpretation what's your interpretation of that okay so i i agree with that and i'm all for that you know why we are not teaching children um about that about their private area and that nobody is to go there and that they are to tell somebody if anybody does touch them in their private area why we're not just doing that as a baseline you know, and and a lot of people have responded to me in saying that, like, oh, it would ruin their innocence. They're they're too young for that. Well, I wonder how ruined their innocence will be if somebody actually did molest them because they didn't know the right and wrong. You know, and we're so quick to um, necessarily so to tell children about things like stranger danger, right? And stranger danger is telling a child not to talk to somebody that they don't know because they may get kidnapped, essentially. Right now, that's a pretty scary concept for a child. So, if we're happy to do that, why we're we not also happy to say these are the areas that nobody touches, and if they do, you tell somebody about it. It's simple as that. Yeah, that would be yeah. the modern day equivalent of stranger danger, wouldn't it? In, yeah. in the in the appropriate vocabulary. But Sean, some parents don't want to do it. They feel embarrassed themselves to do it. I think that's part of the problem. They feel like that's an uncomfortable conversation when sex is the most natural thing that we do. It's what the reason why we're all here, but nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. It's stigmatized. Definitely. Yeah. So and when, got- you, when you, when you brush something under the carpet, it festers and comes back out at some point. Absolutely. Doesn't it? So we've got naive, let's call them children who are naive to the dangers growing up and it is so sad that we even have to have these conversations it shouldn't be like this but we live on a planet where we do need to have these conversations so let's have the conversations so what kind of feedback are you getting from people who subscribe to your youtube channel so generally people are 99 percent of people are showing support they're showing they're saying that they feel encouraged. They've got strength. They're thinking about talking to their children. They've seen different perspectives on this subject. I would say the very odd comment I get, which is negative. I have a few people trying to uh, accusing me that I'm normalizing pedophilia or trying to accept the people that do this or have these tendencies. And for me, Sean, I don't know how you like you must also get many negative comments and it really does disrupt my day. I've got to manage that a little bit better because it's not what I'm trying to do, you know? Yeah, I can give you some advice on that because I've been through it a few times now. The absolute policy with these people is just to not acknowledge them because it feeds them and to yeah. block them block them immediately because, yeah. uh, 
you know, on your channel and on mine, I imagine it's just overwhelmingly love and support. Yes. And they are the people who deserve our focus. Absolutely. These other people have got perhaps um, problems in their own lives and they're projecting their own suffering upon us. And um, if if you do engage, it just feeds the negativity and there's, there's it can lead to points where there's never any end to it. You just go round and round. It doesn't matter what, how you explain yourself to these people. What I've learned is they've already decided that you're a bad person <laughs> and nothing yeah. you say is going to change their mind. Yeah. It's, it's a w- absolute waste of energy to expend a further second on them other than blocking them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm just absolutely ignoring them. And this whole talk about normalizing pedophilia, I mean, that's, that's their response to us talking about things like supporting them to not give in to the temptation, rehabilitating them through their prison sentence, sorting investigating why these people are doing this trying to understand why they're doing that they're all productive things i think i feel and all and angles we must come at the topic um people who are saying that's trying to normalize pedophilia well i disagree so yeah just dismiss them so which videos are you most proud of that you've published on your channel so sean i got two the first one is the one that you saw last year, which is the documentation of me knocking on his door. And the other one is this two minute an- animation that I put together with a London company. And they're both completely different styles. They're both talking about completely different areas of the topic. They've both got so much attention. I feel proud of them. And you know what, Sean, this project of raising awareness has really given my life like meaning and purpose like it never had before like I loved my engineering job before and I was on very prestigious projects with car manufacturers like McLaren supercars etc and that was great but this is completely different now it feels like there's a mission here and it's really given I wake up with a buzz and I'm like right we can do this today this today I've got more film projects coming out and and it feels good I call it like the the gift and the curse of my child sexual abuse because it's brought some good but obviously some bad yeah that's great that's it isn't it I think the key there is you know many survivors have fallen back on substance abuse but what you've done is you have transformed that dark energy into magic because you do just radiate positivity and you can see you've got this mission that fuels you and that's that's just such a fantastic thing and i think there's so many survivors out there that would be inspired by your story we need to get it to even bigger audiences to you know to delve into the psychodynamics of how you've managed to do that because it is the vast majority that fall back on, on, on drugs and shooting up heroin or alcoholism. And it's really sad. So what you've done is unique, Jeremy, and it, it, it takes real strength of mind. Thank you. So, Thank you know, you. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I wish you all the best with your mission. And, and 12-step woman just put in the chat that she's just subscribed to your channel. So I'd urge um, everybody to check out Jeremy's links. They'll be below this video. And to, to do, please subscribe. Let me just check if there's any final questions have come in. Ta-da. The, enchi- the entire chat is now inspired by you, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank you so yeah, much. I really appreciate good. it. 
it's that 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 energy you got is contagious it's like everybody's just you know, yeah i'm really trying sean i'm really trying because what happened has happened now it's like what can we do about it there's got to be some good you can squeeze out of it you know yeah what can we learn from it because you can't change it can you you can't a lot, a lot of people are anchored to it in a negative yeah. way whereby they're just angry and they carry that anger and you see yeah. that anger then damaging their immune systems and destroying them and something that I always remind myself of is if that eight-year-old boy that I was was looking at me now, right? If I'm all over the place and I'm grabbing drugs and alcohol to try to relieve, that eight-year-old boy would be so sad to see me in that state, right? But if I'm going to try to do something with this, speak boldly about it, speak from a strong point of view about it, that eight-year-old boy would be proud, you know? And that, that is a nice feeling for me. That's something I always remind myself of. Yeah, I think that um, survivors all over the world are going to be inspired by what you've said. So huge thank you for coming on. Um, keep us posted on, on any developments. And I'm, I'm going to go over to your channel as well and, and check out the animation. Yeah, brilliant, Sean. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, take care, man. Good thank luck. You. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Jay, how's it going, man? Sean, what's up, man? Glad to be here. Yeah, really appreciate it. How's things going for you on YouTube these days? Uh, pretty good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, things are tough in the sense of you have to kind of come up with these creative phrases to self-censor, right? Where you, you make up new words to talk about <laughs> stabbies or you talk about uh, perhaps uh, sexual things in a new creative way that the, that the algorithm doesn't notice. But other than that, I mean, uh, we've seen a lot of growth in the last year. So we're headed up to about 100K almost. Yeah, I've started saying that Epstein was a there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to just tell people a little bit about yourself who are not familiar with your work first? Yeah, I do. Uh, Esoteric Hollywood is the two books, one and two, and that covers cults, mobs, mafia, symbolism, anything to do with movies that you think might be scandalous and worth knowing about. Um, then I do, we did a TV show based on that first book a couple of years ago called uh, Hollywood Decoded, which is at Gaia. Um, I host uh, the fourth hour of the Alex Jones show about once every two weeks, three weeks on average. And uh, YouTube channel, as you mentioned, website, a lot of articles. So I cover geopolitics, I cover movies, I cover um, what I do is it's called a, a global elite book series where I go through 50, 60 plus writings of the elite and then kind of summarize that a lot of people don't have time to read they don't have time to get into all these really boring technical books that they write but i know uh, from watching your interviews you're a big reader you're, you're a guy who likes to read books so you know that a lot of times they put into books what they're gonna do right what they're gonna what they're gonna foist upon the masses and then um i watched a lot of your channel actually in the last year since we did our interview and you kind of got me in this mode of getting deeper into angles that I didn't really get into in the past that that Hollywood touches on, which is the connections to, you know, these big compromise operations like Epstein, the connections to these networks of trafficking, that kind of stuff. I did a deep dive on serial killers and a lot of that serial killers having connections to uh, organized crime, to um, uh, contract killing. And then I did a deep dive into the history of the mafia itself, Sicilian mafia, organized crime, and how that connects so often into 
uh, the intelligence apparatus, again, compromise operations, uh, counterintelligence. And so you uh, you provided a, quite a bit of inspiration for me the last year to, to go into other domains that uh, were kind of just areas that I touched on. Yeah, well, it's a two-way street, and it's a credit to your modesty. You just said something very low-key there that has um, grabbed my attention. Did you say you're the host for the fourth hour of the Alex Jones show? Yeah, I've been hosting the fourth hour for about six months. Holy shit, that is huge, man. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I, yeah, I watched... We had a, we had a big uh, report uh, a couple weeks ago my first kind of big viral thing. We had about a million and a half views across different platforms. So that's my big kind of, you know, we, I think we had more traffic and more book purchases in that week than I'd had in the last four years. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've watched Alex for years and I saw the rise of Paul Joseph Watson and, um, you know, the audience that Alex has is absolutely gigantic. Isn't it? I think him and David Icke were, classified as the two biggest conspiracy researchers at one point in time. I know they both got significantly deplatformed, but still. So um, how are you able to say how that came about? Really, it was just, I think, uh, the producer, uh, Alex's producer, was a big fan of the stuff that I do. She likes all the wacky kind of comedy that I do. She she likes the, uh, the debates that I've done with a lot of uh, Muslims, a lot of atheists and that kind of stuff. So just a, a weird kind of cross pollination and you know a lot of the stuff that i talk about overlaps very well with with what uh, alex talks about in fact the idea to do the global elite book series itself kind of came from alex because a lot of the books he's mentioned over the years i would take note of and i think that's crazy that so they told us uh, 50 60 years ago what their degenerate plan was I, i'm gonna go read that book and so that's what i did i went plowed through all these really boring books because i'm kind of a nerdy mixburg like that where i'll just sit and read all day and then i I realized well i can just you know turn this into lectures and and help people understand all this stuff so we've gone through dozens of those and i think that's how it really keyed in with what alex talks about okay just one more alex question then i'll I'll drop this subject so he's like a a ball of tough texas energy just you know when he 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 really gets going What have you found him likes to interact with? So, yeah, we did get to meet and hang out with Alex twice in person. We met him at a protest uh, a few months ago, and then I met Alex at the studio. It's got the host in studio, uh, and that was a, that was kind of a dream come true. That was a lot of fun because I've been watching Alex, Alex since about 2003. And, yes, he's like Yosemite Sam in person, if you're familiar with the cartoon <laughs> character. And you, you always expect that when you meet people in person – they're going to be, you know, toned down from their on-camera persona. You know, if you meet, kind of, it's not that way. Like he, it's never turned off. It's never dialed down. It is like, it is like a ball. It's a champagne supernova ball of energy at all times. Fantastic. So Ash sent me a video uh, this morning that I watched regarding research into Epstein, Maxwell, Maxwell Senior, KGB, and Yuri Bezmanov. Should we start by expanding on that? Yeah, I sent that because I thought it would be relevant to the Epstein info, and it's an angle that a lot of people don't touch on. I have a, one of my really good friends is a, a, a Russia analyst. He's a specialist in history of Russia, Russian language, and Russian geopolitics, and, and he had done this deep dive into a uh, former KGB colonel's diary 
Right? I mean, the guy's former in the sense that he's passed away. And he had never been translated into English. And what was turned up was a lot of details relating to kind of how uh, Maxwell, uh, who Robert Maxwell, who is uh, Ghislaine's dad, he was kind of like the Epstein of the Cold War era. And I just thought that was fascinating because the same model of this operation, this compromise plan and, and strategy and what they were doing with, you know, uh, taping people and getting dirt on them for sexual stuff. This is the exact same model uh, that you saw, you know, Epstein engaging in. And I, I love Cold War stuff. I love all that kind of espionage dialectics of that period and how that ties into to organized crime. And so I just thought that was a fascinating story that a lot of people didn't know that, that, that Maxwell, who was, you know, head of this billion dollar publishing empire, he was kind of put in this position. It was kind of doing this. Nobody exactly knows where this money comes from. Like suddenly millions and millions of dollars show up. People have this high status as a CEO and it's kind of a cutout, right? It's a thing where they're doing a lot of other things with this legitimate business, such as funneling money, uh, laundering, uh, compromising, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it, it appears Epstein was trying to do a kind of, excuse me, not Epstein. Well, he may have been doing it too, but uh, it appears Maxwell was trying to do kind of a play both sides of KGB and the Western intelligence apparatus too, as a go between. And um, this supposedly didn't end well, right? I mean, he ends up uh, mysteriously vanishing off of a boat. <laughs> so Perhaps that was a hit. A lot of people think that was an Israeli intelligence hit against somebody who was aiding Israeli intelligence. That's somewhat speculation, but that's often what happens to these people in that position is that they can get easily burned, right? Like Epstein. So I just thought it was a fascinating angle that a lot of people don't don't know about with this whole Epstein story is that it's not anything new. It's a it's kind of a pattern that we see repeated, and. Um, yeah, I, th I think that that provides a lot of insight into what's, what was going on with Epstein. So there's been much controversy and debate about when Epstein, the relationship with Glenn Maxwell began and whether there was a relationship with the father. So we've had Ari Ben-Menashe on and he said, this predates the mainstream media version. Listening to your video this morning, there were some parallel claims there that it did indeed predate and there was a lot more information. Could you expand on that, please? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of specific details as to whether that's the case. But like I said, this model is is a known model. And I would presume that, again, speculating, this, you know, the Epstein wasn't some unique case. I think these models of, of operation are going on concurrently kind of all over the place. And there's no telling how many of these kinds of operations there are or I would imagine in Las Vegas, there's probably many of these operations going on. Uh, if you think back to the, the book by Henry Benson about uh, my publisher publishes that one uh, about confessions of a DC madam. Uh, that's a, that's a similar type of thing. Think about uh, Deborah Jean Palfrey. Um, also uh, another DC mad. One was for guys, one was for girls. Uh, if you know what I mean, uh, both of those operations had a very similar model to what we're seeing now. Um, there was even a case, I think, of a, of a big estate in Georgia uh, a couple of years ago that came out that was doing a similar type of model. I don't remember who that was for, but point being is that I think that, yeah, the parallels would be that it's this is a decades old operation. Probably just Lane learned the, this model from her dad. Uh, uh, her dad was, uh, you know, rumored to be a, a pretty notorious kind of person, right? The kind of guy who would, who would have you killed with no problem. 
And so again, I think that's where this model came from. It wasn't a thing that like Epstein was recruited and he just came up with the whole thing. Um, I think he had his ulterior plans with stuff that he'd organized on the tech side of things with MIT, with these wild kind of, uh, uh, you know, wh who's the Bond villain in Moonraker, right? Who wants to like seed the whole earth with his, <laughs> so, I mean, he's got these crazy plans. So I think he was kind of, you know, doing that stuff. And I think Ghislaine was probably more so the intelligence mind behind how people were, were would be compromised because she was, of course, recruiting the girls and kind of being like a madam, basically running that whole operation. So, and she would have learned that from her dad, again, decades ago, not some recent uh, organic thing that just popped out of nowhere. So from your research, then, when do you think Epstein first met the Maxwells? Uh, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Not sure. Okay. And what do you think is going to be the outcome of Maxwell's trial, if there is a trial? Well, we've seen that uh, people at a certain level do have the ability to escape justice. Uh, not always. Um, in the case of, uh, you know, Weinstein, we saw him, I think, kind of being a sacrificial lamb. He was burned. Uh, so the, the, that's why I'm saying that that position is a really dangerous position to be in because you're you can so easily be burned. Uh, it's hard to say what will happen. Um, I think that probably we won't see much justice because we typically don't. Um, if there is any justice, it'll just be him. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. I mean, her. I'm saying him. He's he's supposedly dead. Right. He was uh, uh, he killed himself. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I meant to. I, I meant to say uh, her. Um, I, I don't think that uh, she's going to get in much trouble. Honestly, do you think there's a possibility she could be suicided? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if he if he was, and I think he was, uh, she could be. Um, what did you make? I know I didn't get up to the shows where you were. You covered the image of her with a, <laughs> a black eye. <laughs> what do you make of that? So our theory on that is that she's playing the health card. Oh. You know, I, I wrote the life story of an old school uh, mafia guy, two Tonys. Um, he was a Bonanno crime family associate. He was doing 140 plus years in Arizona State. And he described mafia guys just showing up in court with oxygen masks or getting wheeled into court on <laughs> hospital beds. You know, with with uh, with all kinds of machines beeping and and monitoring, um, it's an old school mafia technique yeah. of of playing the health card. She made all these complaints about the conditions. Yeah. Hey, this is American jail. What do you expect? So point. now she's trying to back that up with the physical side of it. I believe. Yeah, if you watched uh, Sopranos, if you remember the the character Junior, who's Tony's uncle, who's kind of the pretend head of the family it's really tony running stuff but junior thinks he's running it and then when he gets taken in he really he, he wheels around an oxygen tank and oh i, I can't move i can't move and it's off it's all an axe I, yeah it made me think of that scene so since we last spoke then we had the linwood tweets whereby he claimed that epstein was still alive do you have any thoughts on that theory well to be honest with you i've uh in 2017 uh did a video that got some traction where I, I already kind of uh, tried to head off QAnon at the pass by saying that I thought it was a counterintelligence scam. Uh, I always maintain that, that narrative, that explanation that it would be a trap. And I, I think that's exactly what it was. 
So uh, once I saw that uh, Wood was kind of promoting all the QAnon stuff, not trying to call into question his motives, a lot of people were sincerely duped by um, QAnon, which I think was a pretty sophisticated uh, counterintelligence operation. Uh, I didn't pay much attention to him, so no, I, I wouldn't put. I mean, anything is possible, but uh, that's it's, that's a dubious source for me. Okay, so um, Robert Maxwell had this web of organized crime, politicians, intelligence agencies, and you've studied the organized crime and serial killer connections to high-level political elites and intelligence agencies. Could you tell us some about that, please? Yeah, so this was, again, this was a, a, an area I, I, I delved into partly because as I was listening to your interviews from a couple of years ago where you were talking about your ecstasy ring and, and what had happened there, and I remember thinking, now, wait a minute, so here we have a connection between raves, and I always loved electronic dance music. I was always a big fan of EDM, and, and I would always hear these stories about people saying, well, you know, at the rave, the drugs don't pop out of nowhere. There's certain people that are allowed in some cases in, in other countries, for example, to bring it in. And I would hear um, big DJs. I had a friend who was a DJ and, and uh, she did a lot of shows over in Asia. And she said that, you know, when we would go to Japan, we'd have to get permission from the Yakuza to bring in ecstasy. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Right. So, I, so that jibe perfectly with all the stuff you said. So that kind of set me down this route. And I had some friends who had done some research on this. So I went deep into organized crime and I started noticing a lot of what we're seeing with things like Murder, Inc., probably everybody's familiar with Albert Anastasia and, and Murder, Inc., which was a contract guild, basically, of, of uh, contract killers back in the heydays of the mafia in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and I thought, well, if there's a guild of, of killers that the mob could call upon, presumably the government has a guild of killers, too, right? I mean, that's kind of what you do when you join the military is you learn to be a killer, right? And so then I got into looking into things like the Phoenix program and I'd done a lot of research in MK ultra obviously, but the, the Phoenix program is a really particular one because this was where they were really training people to become serial killer psychos. Right. I mean, you go watch uh, something like apocalypse now. And you know, when you see the Colonel Kurtz character, you think, Oh, this is just some guy who went crazy and everybody has in their mind that, image of the crazy Vietnam vet. If you're in America, like you'll even see these guys kind of wandering down the streets, acting crazy, still Vietnam vets doing that. But there was more to that, right? It wasn't just getting the, the troops on drugs. There was a lot of experimentation that went on that the CIA had cooked up about how can we terrorize Viet Cong by creating these just maniac guys? And they would profile, they would profile people with narcissistic personality disorder, the dark triad, as you probably know, um, and then put those people into that kind of a position. And so then I looked into uh, Dr. Thomas Nerud, who was a famous naval uh, intelligence operative psychologist, and he spilled the beans in an interview back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, to even to, it was even in the New York Times, talking about the Navy's program that was profiling um, basically psychos, right? And they were even looking in prisons to find uh, psychotic guys that would then bring them in, sheep dip them and put them in these kind of operations. And a lot of that, we don't know all the details about it's classified, but that it existed, we know that Phoenix program existed, we know. And so then I started looking deeper into the serial killers, their stories, their backgrounds. And what do you know, dozens of them had, you know, significant military uh, time and training. Dozens of them have connections to things like Hell's Angels, 
uh, which I think is another kind of front organiz- uh, operation that can be used for contract killing, et cetera. Uh, and so they, they and even high level intelligence connections, even people like Ted Bundy have these bizarre and, and uh, Dahmer have these bizarre connections to CIA people, to generals. Uh, Dahmer was even under suspicion for uh, very brutal murders that occurred in Germany when he was stationed at a base that was, by the way, about 20 minutes from another base in Germany that another famous serial killer was stationed at, Gary Heidnick. And when got, when Gary Heidnick came back, and we know uh, Heidnick was part of MKUltra and, and uh, the LSD experimentation, when Heidnick came back, he started a cult. And so this is a, so we see these patterns. We see the, the long story short, the real pattern of the serial killer, as Dave McGowan and other authors have pointed out, is more like what you would notice with contract killing, um, the hand of death cult, if you're familiar with Henry Lee Lucas and that story. It's, it's that they have accomplices in almost every case, or there's reports of accomplices. It's that they have some connection to occultism or, or a cult. Uh, it's that there's the notion of filming it, which could be for SNUFF purposes or for proof that the killing contract killing had occurred. Um, the people are typically well connected. Most of the serial killers have at least some high level, not all. These are, these are just sort of generalities here, but I think that's the real profile, right? Is that, that you notice the trauma, you notice the DID, the military training or some kind of high level connection, whether it's Gacy being connected to uh, the, his being, being the democratic party precinct captain and being, um, meeting uh, Rosalind Carter in person, being vetted by security services to, to go meet her, or Ted Bundy being a rising GOP star who just happens to be uh, studying at university under these uh, CIA professors who would later become senators. I mean, these are all just very bizarre connections and, and things that I think point to a different pattern of the serial killer, which directly correlates with organized crime. And I know you're, you you know way more about the Savile situation than I did, but I did a recent deep dive on Savile. And you know what I started noticing is guess what? He fits that exact profile. You've got the connection between high level government. You've got the connection to entertainment, which is again, Hollywood stuff in, in the U S and you've got the connection to most likely uh, intelligence services. Uh, Savile made comments hinting at this a few times that he worked undercover. He was protected high up. Um, I mean, come on, if you're getting papal knighthood, right, you're obviously connected, right? If you're hanging out with uh, Prince Charles all the time, you're connected. Um, and, and I think that when you look at the Bradley, Ian Bradley, Myra Henley, Peter Sutcliffe connections, it, I mean, it just to me, that just screams that, yeah, there's a cult connection here with those people on the Moors murders, but this is a contract killing operation. Like he's protected because in the midst of these random so-called murders or the, the serial killer madness that they engage in, there's certain people that are going to be the targets, right? There's certain people who are, who are picked out. Um, there's even movies made about this, right? There's an old John Travolta movie where they, they sort of stack within a bunch of ser- random serial killings uh, target. So a lot of that kind of stuff goes on in a, it's much more pervasive perhaps than we might think in the history of crime. And, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think that just over and over and over, those are the patterns that we see. I mean, what, what, you tell me, what, what do you think about that thesis about, I mean, is, is Savile an intelligence covered contract killer basically? Okay. So we've got a four hour documentary about Savile coming out soon James has been working on this for a year or so now. And um, it goes way beyond the normal narrative that we've been told in the news. 
to have the highest access to the royal family to be brought in. You got to be vetted. To be brought in as a marriage guidance counselor for Charles and Di, they had to research this guy's background and know completely what he was doing. So he was given a pass. And in, I think it was the first interview with David Icke, he said that Savile had leverage over these powerful people, including royals, because he was procuring. He wasn't just committing these acts as a lone wolf. He was procuring and, you know, whatever powerful networks there are out there. He was, he was like a, a, a Maxwell of the times for those people. So did, has your research led you to come oh, to this absolutely. conclusion? Yeah. So the, 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 the procuring appears to be done with the, these couple gangs that he runs with, right? The, the Moore's gang, the Whitby gang. Uh, and so those, the Moore's murders appear to be in this circle of the people that are procuring and doing the ritual murders. And my theory about the, the way cults work in this setting, and, and I think there's a similar pattern with Son of Sam. Um, that's all coming out now in the recent uh, Netflix documentaries where they're covering uh, Maury Terry's book. Um, but that, that was kind of been, you know, rumored about for a long time that that there's a connection between a lot of these killers and i'm not trying to change subject from savile but i'm saying you see this model again this parallel with the usage of the people in the cult and a cult minded uh, people in a cult are perfect for this because they're brainwashed so if you have people that are a little more uh machiavellian uh, that, that perhaps don't necessarily believe the dogma of the crazy cult you can get people to do things for you, right? Such as contract killing, such as murders. And that's what some of the serial killers have come out on record to say, right? Berkowitz claimed this, uh, Henry Lee Lucas claimed this. And he said, if you go look up, you know, the hand of death cult, uh, in Brownsville, if you, you'll find a, a barn or whatever it was where the Matamoros cult had killed 12 or 13 people. And sure enough, that was the case. And so we keep seeing this pattern of uh, the usage of brainwashed people to do things that humans normally wouldn't do, but under the control of these people, they will. And so that's how I think that what you've got with uh, Myra Hindley and uh, Ian Bradley, uh, Sutcliffe and, and Savile is a, a procuring operation. I mean, he was into the degenerate necrophilia stuff. Um, he's made comments to the effect that he was to some degree, at least interested in Crowley, um, Crowleyanism, whether that means he was a practicing ritual magician, I'm not sure, but it, it, that's at least possible. And what, that, what you see there is again, the analog that you see with the process church, son of Sam Manson, same, same pattern here of potentially higher level people. And now there's that Tom O'Neill book that's out talking about, you know, uh, Manson having that that uh, association with higher level, perhaps handlers. So that's what I think was going. I mean, again, it, uh, it's an ongoing project for me to research this, but that would be my in, uh, intuitions about what's going on with Savile. Have you looked at the role of the BBC in the Savile cover up? Yeah. What did I mean, you agree? Yeah. What did you conclude there? Uh, well, it seems to be that there was a good phrase that uh, was it. Um, uh, James Corbett had about uh, where you get the the most compromised people into those positions of power. And that's, if you do that across society, like the whole society can be controlled, right? So uh, there's an actual process by which you get the most 
degenerate people in those positions of power. But I recall uh, there was the, is it the Janie Jones incident um, is a good insight into this because you had the, uh, there was a uh, dream flight and, and a lot of the people from BBC were connected to the dream flight where Savile and these wealthy people had these NGOs and these fronts by which they were flying children to Disney, uh, presumably raping and compromising children um, on these flights. Um, and that connected directly to to these BBC people, if I recall. Do you know what I'm, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I mean, they, they protected him until he was dead. So they enabled him to get away with all of these crimes. And, you know, the BBC is supposed to cherish certain values. But um, well, do you remember that they would have that so-called traditional Catholic uh, Lord, Lord, uh, was it Longmore? But he was a supposedly traditional Catholic, but he was always lobbying for Peter Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe to get off. And they would have him on the BBC. I was watching old interviews of him. And it's like, wait, so wait a minute. Why is he lobbying to get this? Uh, Lord Lord Longford, that's it. Lord Longford would, would lobby to get uh, Myra Hindley and these different Peter Sutcliffe and these people released. And so they're not, it's not just Savile. It's like they're they're aiding and protecting even the people in the, the Savile network. The so actual serial th- killers. So do you think it's, you know, the, the biggest psychopaths then have currency in their own ability to do these horrible things and that's how they get hired by intelligence or the elites or whatever it's like you said at the very beginning there's a place where crime organized crime killers coexist with the government and the the authorities yeah and we know that there's there's on record multiple programs where they did that, where they, they, at Vacaville, they tried to profile different killers that could be used. The Naval program, uh, Dr. Thomas Nerud talked about MKUltra to a degree. And perhaps those programs are even part of the, the broad ranging MKUltra, we don't know, but uh, Phoenix program, another example of that. And so, yeah, I think that's absolutely what's going on here. Now, I'm not saying Jimmy Savile was part of the Phoenix program, or I mean, that's a, a US based thing, but, I mean, it's just too, there's too many just striking coincidences with, with these patterns that keep repeating in these cases. And yeah, that, that's the, 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 the overlap is that someone like a Savile is an ex- excellent example of somebody like an Epstein that has a, a window, a, a way into these different, maybe you could look at it like sides of the pyramid, right? So you've got the the media and entertainment people up here. You've got the, political elite up here you've got the ceo corporate elite up here you got the banking elite on the different sides of this pyramid and and there's certain people that can kind of be a node to to go in between these different worlds uh and i definitely think savile was one of those kinds of people yeah i agree so do you think savile had a satanic agenda it would appear so i was reading some of the interviews that he did and uh he again claimed to enjoy the libertarian aspect of Crowleyan philosophy, do what thou wilt. He said, you know, my ultimate guiding philosophy, he says, is total freedom, total liberty. And he says, for that, for me, that means to do whatever I want to do at any time. So if, if I want to kill somebody, I do it. And he says, not many people, not many people got that kind of freedom, right? I was <laughs> one of them, he says, right? So, so again, hinting at protection. Like he's a, he's got a level of protection. Now, whether he means in his mind that it was a satanic level of protection or whether he meant government protection or perhaps both, I don't know. But he, he does have on record statements kind of 
hinting at that he was interested in Crowleyanism. Um, it does appear that he has ritual garb. There's a lot of stories of the people that were abused claiming that he was uh, overtly interested in, in uh, various forms of Satanism. And again, that's something that's come up with many of the serial killers. Now, whether whatever you guys believe about Satanism itself is, is one thing, but whether people in cults or who are serial killers have those affinities and proclivities is objectively just factually the case. I mean, um, a lot of people don't even know that Dahmer was uh, very interested. He had drawn out, sketched out this big altar that he was going to build with uh, some of the skulls of the victims. Wow. He, he called it his power altar. Um, and I think the, and I'm not trying to get off on Dahmer, just using it as an example, but there were so many things in the Dahmer situation that blew me away. I'd never even heard of. Uh, did you know that he, he was stationed at a base and there's a cable that when he, when the, the German government inquired into the murders that had occurred in Germany, when he was stationed there, there's a cable that says, uh, in, uh, investigation into Jeffrey Dahmer squashed due to connection to high level general. <laughs> wow, I had no idea about any of this stuff. This is crazy. I know well, that there's a I, whole trove. I, don't, I really don't know the early history of of, of Dahmer. So he he um, just ended up in the military somehow and went and ended up in Germany on a on a U.S. base. Is that what you're saying? Well, he had a. a, a a bizarre, and there's a lot of details about his youth that we don't know. I've watched a lot of the long interviews with his dad and his mom, and they, they have two different stories of the of the uh, childhood period, which is odd. Now, there is a, a claim of molestation, I think, by an older teenager when Dahmer was 12 or 13, somewhere in there. Uh, and then he seems to de- have developed this proclivity for death and dead things. And so he would be collecting... Uh, the carcasses of dead animals on the road. Like when most guys are out trying to get laid, <laughs> he's out collecting carcasses of death. And he literally did. If you watch that movie, my friend Dahmer, it's, it's a uh, uh, pretty accurate. He, w- he would like store them in this, you know, shed out back. And his dad had a, uh, a job uh, at PPG, which is a, a large mega, mega uh, paint company. So it's, it's industrial chemicals, paint, something like Dow, except they focus on, on uh, uh, painting. And um, I know about this because I used to work for a paint company. And another odd aspect that a lot of people don't know about or haven't looked into when it comes to uh, MKUltra is the connection to big chemical companies. A lot of people are like, oh, it's government assassins. It's people, you know, put into a, a float tank. It's, you know, Joe Rogan's float tank where you're getting your mind. No, there's a lot more to it than that. It was studies across the board and everything to do with human psychology and sociology and social engineering. And it involved, there's a whole, this is a whole angle that nobody's even delved into Um, big companies like Dow. And I would suspect chemical companies. Now, the reason I say that is that in interviews regarding Dahmer's dad, he talks about being knowledgeable of chemical um, of drugs, basically. And that at that, he says at that time when my wife was pregnant and she was having mental problems, he says, we, it was, it was nothing at that time to just for me to, figure out what drugs to prescribe. So he was giving drugs to the pregnant wife, right? Which a lot of people think that Dahmer could have been, you know, affected by uh, his mother using drugs while he was in the womb. That's, that's certainly possible. Then we get the story of the abuse. There's a lot of weird uh, things that suggest that perhaps he was abused by somebody. I'm not saying it was his dad and we don't know, but again, I think the chemical uh, connection there, his, his dad being this kind of high level chemist is suspect. 
And then when he, for some reason, uh, enters the military, he goes directly into um, medical study. So he's, he's a medical research guy and they send him off to Germany to this base, which as I said, is about 20 minutes from another famous serial killer being stationed in Germany, Gary Heidnick. And he learns to dissect carcasses, right? So, so apparently the, the military said, this guy really likes dead animals. He really likes, you know, dead things, uh, put him over there. Right. So they pr- apparently profiled him. Uh, let's teach him how to correctly dissect carcasses. Now, what use might a person who has no qualms about dead carcasses and cutting up bodies, what use might he have? Well, he could be very useful for the organ trade, couldn't he? Yeah. So there's an interesting theory that Dahmer wasn't just being taught, you know, crazy medical stuff because he was a crazy serial killer guy, but that he could be used in operations that would be, you know, uh, not on the up and up, something like organ trade, which is very plausible. We've seen in the, in the past certain serial killers have that proclivity. They have connections to the organ trade, perhaps. That's speculation, but it is an angle that could place him into that kind of a network and why he would be um, protected due to his connection to an unnamed general in one of these cables. Um, other things that come to the fore with Dahmer, too, is that when he does come back and when he does start committing the murders uh, and then they investigate him, the investigation squashed. And then he seems to have uh, police protection. I mean, there was a case where one of the boys was the the, the local um, uh, neighbors right, had called the police and said this why is this weird guy got like young kids living there? <laughs> He's got, you know, these weird, con- they sent the co- One of the cops sent a boy, just send him back. Okay. Yeah. We'll go back over there, which again, is just very bizarre given the circumstances, given what the suspicions were. And uh, the, actually the uh, parents actually sued the police department over this incident with uh, the boy sent back to Dahmer. Um, long story short, there's other uh, accounts where people believe Dahmer had a connection and access to high level people. There were, there were situations where uh, he, he appears to have had been in the, in the circles of uh, uh, high level uh, special ops people uh, that he was claimed to be friends with, which is, again, bizarre for this kind of a person. And so, uh, you know, is this a procuring network? Is it a uh, organ trade? Is it, uh, it it could be all the above. Right. It could be any of that. And by the way, if you look at the I think it's fairly recently released maybe in the last few years, photos of Dahmer's apartment. There's a giant security camera positioned up in the corner looking in. And this is what we see in every one of these cases of the high profile serial killers is it's it's either being filmed for SNUFF reasons or it's being filmed for proof of contract killing or who knows what else. So, I mean, nobody who has a cheap apartment just has a security camera pointing in like in the corner of your living room looking down on your you know, your area, uh, there's the sketches of his, his power altar. So all of that stuff plays into the Dahmer case. Uh, and, and it, it, there's more, but th- these are just wild details. By the way, there's a connection between Dahmer and uh, also real quick, the uh, process. A lot of people don't know that so there, there was a guy who was in the process church who was in the circles of Berkowitz, uh, Brother John, he's called. And he supposedly converts, right, and come, comes out of the process after all that. Uh, and starts this bizarre evangelical, quasi-weird evangelical cult ministry in Milwaukee. And hanging out at the gay bars, he had uh, a, a connection and knew uh, Dahmer. In fact, he talked to the police about Dahmer. So here you have a 
direct connection between. And by the way, uh, that's not the only one. There's if you if you guys haven't heard the um, you probably have, but the Clown and Candyman podcast has now demonstrated the connection between Gacy, Dean Coral, the Candyman killer in Texas, and John David Norman, the the famous uh, child you know what prawn uh, uh, promoter in the U.S. in the seventies. The biggest operation of that stuff in the seventies which is connected to the North Fox Island. That's the Epstein of the U.S. in the 70s, the North Fox Island um, operation where they were bringing boys into this camp. Uh, that was another compromise operation. It included high-level uh, elites, including GM executives uh, connected to that case, also connected to Satanism, by the way. Um, so here we have a direct connect. So Paskey, the guy that's the right-hand man of John David Norman, connects to Dean Coral, Candyman Killer in Texas, and connects, and he was burying the bodies for Gacy. And people rumored this was rumored to go on for and nobody believed it. And now it's come out. Now you've got even mainstream WGN has done newscasts <laughs> about this now. So, so that's where we are is that what's kind of being unearthed is that like at every layer, whether it's the serial killers or whether it's organized crime or whether it's the government, high level military assassins, high level political elites, uh, entertainment, this stuff is so intertwined. It just, it would blow the mind of the average person. Wow, Jay Dyer does not disappoint, folks. This has been absolutely mind-blowing. I've learned so much this evening. Thank you for going into overtime. We do have a couple of questions that come in from the viewers. Have you got time to answer those? Oh, sure, absolutely. Okay, so this is from Cynthia Garcia. Would the Unibomber fit this category too? I'm referring to the mind control yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I forgot to mention um, Whitey Bulger was uh, unknowingly and unwittingly dosed as part of MKUltra. A lot of people don't know that, but uh, he uh, that was actually brought up in the trial was that they tried to have a defense on that basis that you know, he'd been essentially abused by the government and been dosed. Um, and when Operation Midnight Climax was done, which is the famous MKUltra study where they uh, used a whorehouse to basically unwittingly dosed the Johns that was done in concert with organized crime. They had to ask the mafia, can we use your, your, uh, your whorehouse here, your little brothel for this experiment? Oh yeah, sure. So um, yes. And I think that my, my read on the Unabomber is that uh, he was part of that program. Um, he, he did have a tendency towards a kind of a libertarian ethos. I've listened to the interviews with him. Uh, I think he was used by the system. Um, I think he believed in some of the system's narratives for a while got used and then was a kind of a patsy. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm not, I'm not advocating everything he said, but uh, yeah, he, he was abused and part of him culture. Yeah. Sammy the ball recently put a video up about the mafia's relationship with Kennedy. Yes. I found that really fascinating. I watched that and I did a deep dive into that. Um, I've been covering that. There's a whole, it's a great book, by the way, Charles Ashman, CIA mafia link is a good classic on that. And Cynthia, I don't know if you've seen the documentary about the Unibomber on Netflix, but it does show the experiments that were done on him at Harvard, I think it was. It was, yeah. All right, so next question is, with the research you did into Eyes Wide Shut, have you done a deep dive on Tom Cruise? And if so, what is your take on his life in Scientology and generally bizarre bizarre behavior? Thanks, Ash. <laughs> That's my Tom Cruise laugh. That's all I can do. 
That's <laughs> all. So I can't talk like him. I just do that goofy laugh he does. Um, I don't know a whole lot about him personally, other than like you said. Obviously, yeah, I watched the whole Going Clear stuff, and I have done a lot of research into um, Scientology as a cult, and obviously he he figures uh, largely into that. But in terms of like what he's really about, I don't know. However, I do. There is good evidence to say, maybe not in every case, but at least in the past. Many A-listers are actually uh, working for intelligence. Uh, again, the people may find that hard to believe, but some of the most famous people in history, uh, uh, various areas of entertainment, Julia Child, uh, she, the famous TV cook, she was OSS. Um, if you think about Walt Disney, Walt Disney was actually working in concert with military intelligence. Ma mobsters, uh, Don Vito Genovese worked with uh, U.S. naval intelligence. Um, Sam Giancana, you just mentioned uh, Sam Giancana, uh, Santos Traficante, they were literally working directly with um, the CIA. The CIA was paying them to try to get assassinations done. Uh, Carlos Marcella down in, in uh, New Orleans um, directly connected all that as well. In fact, they, they had a whole hearing, RFK, right? the whole hearing where they were really trying to pin the JFK assassination on uh, Carlos Marcella and his, his associates. Uh, so, yes, I think that uh, absolutely all right then the next question is have you researched the las vegas ariana grande concert mass shooter stephen paddock uh i'm aware of the the allegations of the the uh, weapons trafficking of the connections to you know saudi stuff i i don't have any hard details on that i know it's like you know it's a there's a lot of different competing theories um both of those guys are, are very bizarre, shady characters. So exactly what was going on there, I don't know. But um, most of those, a lot of high-profile events, you know, they have these bizarre features that, that are hard to figure out. So I wish I could give you more. But, I mean, there's something there. I don't know what. All right, Jay. The show is almost over. You've gone extra with us. I really appreciate your time. Again, huge congrats on the Alex Jones thing. I'm sure you're going to get all your stuff out to a massive audience even bigger now than ever before with that behind you. And um, do you want to just let people know where they can find you and where they can support you? Yeah, you could go to jaysanalysis.com and then uh, I do a subscription service where basically you get access to five or six years now of all the archive talks, lectures, interviews. You can get signed copies of uh, my book, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, there at the shop. Uh, if you want to go into a deep dive into movies and symbolism and, and all this kind of stuff. And then I should have some new stuff coming out. I did a, a few lectures on uh, organized crime, history of the mafia, and now serial killers. We've done, I think, four of the serial killers highlighting these stories. And by the way, Shauna, I know you're a busy guy. you got a lot of stuff going. But I've got like a gigantic stack of serial killer details that are crazy connecting them. If you want to, If you ever want to do another deep dive into that stuff, I can go for hours on that. Yeah, totally. And um, like I said to one of the other guests this evening, if you can get out to London, you know, we could film for hours and hours in, in the studio out here, get it all done professionally, cameraman, sound engineer, etc. So have you ever been to London? Yeah, I did a, uh, a talk. I did a speaking event at uh, Alternative View 9 um, a couple of years ago, and uh, we spent about a week and a half in the UK. It was a blast. Had a, a lot of fun. That was out at Milton Keynes, but I spent about five or six days in London proper. Well, give me a shout if you have any more intentions to come here and we'll, we'll definitely sort something out because um, you, you just got, I can tell you've got a lot of information. So it would be just great to do something more long form. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be great. 
All right. Thanks, man. You have a good rest of your day. You too, Sean. Keep up the good work. All right. Cheers. Good night. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah. So what have you been writing at the Steeples Times then about Prince Andrew and Max? So what's the latest? Well, I did write about her attempt at her, her fifth attempt at getting out. There's been uh, so many. I, I think I missed that one. <laughs> uh, well, today I, I compared her to Violet Elizabeth Bott, which I'm sure none of your American re followers will have a clue, but every, English people might remember just William. She is. She's rather like the the child in the in the original Crompton book, which said, "I'll scream and I'll scream and I'll scream because I can." <laughs> and that's what she is. I really think that's what she's become. She's become a nuisance. And Judge Nathan, if I was this Judge Nathan, I would say, "I'm sick of you. <laughs> I've had enough of you. You're a pest." You're a pungent pest, and you've got to stop screaming. The screaming is not helping her. She's making it worse. Her actions do not help her in any way. The website doesn't help. The, the character called Jay Beecher, the one who, uh, well, he seems to have been taken off Twitter, uh, Facebook for a few days. Good. He doesn't like you, and he hates me. He was going to sue me, and he was going to sue Kirby Summers. He was going to sue all of us. Um, let's see when he sues us, because he hasn't bothered to sue me yet. I would love that. Um, he's a pest. Um, these people are mad. They have to shut. He's created a website called um, uh, something something about uh, his his version of the Ghislaine thing, and these people they like to shout. Um, and Kirby Summers quite rightly sent me a nice message, which I shall read to you. Um, let me try and find it. I've got to bring up the Twitter. Um, no, she she refers to uh, Miss Maxwell's misspelling, and and she suggests dyslexia, which I've had suggested to me from a doctor as well. So. Lots of her legal documents have a lot of misspellings in them. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? So what's your interpretation of that then, the misspellings? That this girl is just she's not very bright. Which explains why she's behaving like a crazy person. She doesn't know when to stop. I don't know what Kirby's thoughts are on it, but Kirby Summers, I think, is very rational. And I think the things she sends me are quite logical and she, she researches carefully. But I think Miss Maxwell personally is somebody so arrogant that she just can't stop. She does not know when to realize that it would be better to shut your mouth and say, do a plea bargain. That would be the logical thing to do right now. And that's what I said today. I said, stop being like Violet Elizabeth Bott and saying, I'll scream and I'll scream and I'll scream until I get what I want. Do a deal. If I were her, give up. You've created a monstrosity and everybody hates you. And Prince Andrew isn't going to help you. No one's going to help you. You know, Prince Andrew gave the queen this dog and it's dead. And I'm sorry for the dead dog. 
and I'm sorry for the Queen because the Queen I think is a lovely woman. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I won't share my views on Prince Andrew, but I think you already know them. Um, and you know, Prince Andrew had good news today. Where you know, with one of his daughters is pregnant, um, that's very positive. But he's got the dead dog. But it's like everything he does, everything he gets involved in, it goes wrong. Is this the dog that he recently bequeathed he to his the queen? Mom? Yes. It's dead already. It's dead already. It's dead already. Yeah, it was, a, it was less than less than a few weeks old, and it's dead. That is a bad but, omen for him. It's a very bad omen, but I don't. I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's just a dead dog. But I'm sorry for the dead dog because I'm sure it's a lovely dog, and I'm sorry for the queen because I think the queen is a wonderful person. But um, seriously. This whole bunch of people, it's time to start being realistic. Prince Andrew, go and answer. You, your father's uh, been dead a long time now, and it's time to go and face the music. Go and answer the questions of the FBI. Be decent. Miss um, Maxwell, be realistic. Do a plea bargain. Come on, get on with it. I think it's time. Let me just go over that a bit because there are various stages of adaptation to incarceration. So when you first get SWAT teamed, you're in shock for a few days, the shock of the newly incarcerated, but you're clinging on to the pipe dream that somehow you're going to get out of the situation. As you settle into cellular living and you adapt and have like a little routine going that shock starts to diminish and you get these visits then from the lawyers and your lawyers say look we're gonna try and get you out of this horrible place by having a bail hearing um you, you know she's obviously rolled the dice five times on that one my theory it is hasn't that she's worked, has it? it hasn't worked hasn't worked once Hasn't worked once. So once you start to see all of these court rulings go against you, uh, even though you've you've got over the shock of, of being incarcerated and your pipe dream hope of getting out is over, as you see these motions going against you, reality is supposed to sink in. So in my case, I, I fought my case for 26 months. And it, it so for that first year, I was really, you know... Um, adamant that I wasn't going to sign a plea bargain. Then in the second year, I was still holding out, thinking that by holding out, it's like you're playing a bluff, really, with the opposition. You're holding out in the hope that you can get a better deal. Well, it's like the, the program, the King's Gambit, the, the chess game. Yeah. You, know, you keep playing and playing in the hope that eventually you might luckily get that, 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 key move and and there is a strategy of making your case go stale as well but her case has got so much publicity she doesn't stand a, a prayer in hell of her All case ever going stale annoy judge nathan with every move she ever makes she continues to piss off this judge and this judge is not a happy person because this woman harangues her she must think oh not her again Every day, it's, oh, I've been victimized in this way. Oh, I've been victimized in that way. 
you must just think, this woman's a pain in the ass. And that is what she's become. So the, the, the last phase then of your unsentenced adaptation is the run up to trial. And her legal team will know when the real trial is going to happen. So in my case, I think my trial date was moved about five times. But we knew that none of those trial dates were ever going to happen because the case was complex with so many co-defendants, it was going to get pushed out. So our legal team will know when the real trial is going to happen. And when that, when that word comes down to our legal team that it's, it's going to go, that is when you have to absolutely adjust your mindset to signing a plea bargain. Because if you're still living in the pipe dream world of uh, thinking you're going to get out by some technicality or one way or another, and you do go to trial and they spend all that money and you lose, you will get the super aggravated maximum sentence. And in America, you'll probably, you'll never, you'll never get out in America, probably never get out. That's what the arrogance of the woman. And I was with people at the weekend who are connected with her and um, they haven't spoken with her recently, but, but she, she still is I think that woman still believes she's getting out. She's a, she, she believes she has, has a get out clause. I don't know what it is. She's stuck in the pipe dream phase then where you cling on. I mean, yeah, the, the but, prospect but when you're facing, work, is it? when you're facing you know a life the, sentence, you know, the, you know, the system you've been through the system and yes, the people we met last week at a, a little event we went to, which was very nice. Um, might think that she's a you know decent person and it's all a bit of a trick. I don't think that at all. But um, she is not getting out of this little problem. The problem will only get bigger if she makes it bigger. Yeah, if you're she's facing a life swamp and she's sinking, and the sinkingness of her sinking is getting more and more, and she is being sucked in. You know, those poor people who, who sunk in Morecambe Bay, and I know a lot about Morecambe Bay, I can tell you that. She is like the people in the quicksand in Morecambe Bay. Once you go in there, you don't get out. And that's where Miss Maxwell is headed, I'm afraid. All right, we're nearly at the end of your session yeah. here, Matthew. It, it goes so fast. Um, we are possibly... I'm happy to have filled in for whoever <laughs> couldn't make it. Yeah. We're we're looking at doing a, a, a Lubbock um, podcast. Did you hear? Did you hear what we proposed this morning? I did speak with um, Ash about uh, his idea, and you know, I I think we have to wait for whatever happens with you know the poor father is very very ill. Okay. But you know, I think it's getting closer to things happening there. Okay, and I've got I've been contacted by the Jeremy Bamber people as well, so oh, really? po possibly a, a podcast there. Right. Um, okay. Well, I've, you know, I'm available to come and talk with you and whenever, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be and support what you're doing because I think it's fantastic. Yeah, perhaps we could get you as a co-interviewer on those two subjects if they do proceed. Indeed, and well, the Madeline McCann people have been in touch with me as well. 
So oh, great. Wow. Who, are, wow. who are involved in that matter. So they would like to talk with you. So. Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Because I've been neutral on the Madeleine McCann thing. I know we've had some people on the channel yeah, who have been very conspiratorial about the parents. I'm not involved in a conspiracy. I, I don't think there's any conspiracy in anything. It's Yeah, uh, I mean, I've, I, I, I've never known. I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I believe in checking a fact, and a fact is not a fact until you've checked it's a fact. Yeah, so I'd love... Um, there's, there's actually uh, the guy in our Jimmy Savile documentary who broke the Jimmy Savile stuff, the ex-cop. He's done a lot on McCann, and he's got the complete opposite side of the other guests we had on him. We intend to get him back on after our um, Jimmy Savile premiere. Okay, well, I will happily help you in any way I can. Great, great. Your input is always appreciated, as is your penchant for orange attire. Well, there we go. Well, <laughs> well, we'll we'll have to wear a jumpsuit together once. Anyway, might just surprise you. Might just surprise you on the next live stream. I'll be here in my nuclear orange Arizona Department of right, Corrections okay, jumpsuit. Well, well, you have to send me one as well, and then we can snap jinx. Precisely. <laughs> and when we talk about dust, the dust case, which is another case that fascinates me. Indeed, let's keep them coming. All right, Matthew, we're okay, going to have to get on to evening. You too. Thank really, really thank appreciate you. You, you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank and people, please go over to the Steeples Times. Matthew's links will be in the description box below this video. He is happy to chat with any of you on Twitter. And he is the publisher of the Steeples Times. So if you want to reach out to Matthew through the links in the description box, he loves to hear from everybody, whether it is a serious crime question or whether you want to know where he got his sweater slash jumper. <laughs>